podcast say, what if your faith could become more than just a story? What if your faith could be as gentle as a dove and as wise as a serpent? What if your faith could become as bold as a lion? What if your faith could become lethal? My name is Blake Harris, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Michael Knight. And here on the Lethal Faith Podcast, we're here to give your faith some lethality. Inscriptions. You know, we talk a lot about inscriptions around here. Uh, that's kind of how we got the Old Testament. Was it was in, inscribed on tablets. Uh, you know, the, the Old Testament talks about how the Ten Commandments was, was put on, uh, inscribed essentially on tablets. And of course, you know, we all, most of us know the story, you know, Moses came from down from the Mount, threw it down, looked at everybody and was like, what are you doing? What? And so, you know, but inscriptions are a powerful thing. They prove to us, uh, history. They prove to us, uh, who real people were, you know, one of the, uh, inscriptions we've talked about several times is, uh, on James's ossuary, the bone box, essentially, uh, where it talks about how the bones of James, uh, the the son of Joseph, the half brother of Jesus. You know that inscription was uh, highly debated, and of course we've went through that and talked about how it was actually went through the court system and actually proven to be real and authentic. Um, and but inscriptions constantly tell us things uh, are are real and can be proven historically. Uh, so inscriptions are much like ancient coins to us, actually. They help us immensely to understand the New Testament. However, they still need to be interpreting, uh, which can be difficult. There are dozens of ancient inscriptions out there uh, because they are crucial for any reconstruction of the Greco-Roman world. Uh, furthermore, Christian uh, Brun, a Roman historian and leading uh, epigrapher, uh, notes that no one who seriously engages with the Roman world can afford to neglect the contribution made by epigraphy to our understanding of ancient culture and society. Which means writing on rocks, inscribing. Yep. And so uh, uh, Clint uh, Burnett says in, in a book studying uh, the New Testament through inscriptions, these inscriptions are direct sources from the ancient world which provide direct evidence of cultural practices, religious beliefs. Uh, many of the inscriptions have survived through uh, variety, uh, um, giving us evidence of the New Testament and the ancient world. You see, an inscription is actually a message that has been written down on material that's durable and lasting. And so we have inscriptions from the first century about the things of the Bible that we can rely on in testing the historical validity of the scriptures. Uh, some of them are enormous, some of them are small. But one of them is mentioned in Acts 6, 9 through 10, the Theodosius inscription. Uh, it's written on limestone. It's found at Opal Cistern at the city of David in 1913. And the inscription is dated to 18 BC. And it's said to come from one of the oldest synagogues in the world. And it seems to support the language. So inscription is actually supporting the language of Acts 6, 9, and 10 as it references the synagogues of the freedmen. 
So this inscription actually supports the information given in Acts 6, 9, and 10. So this is one of the great examples of how an inscription can support the narratives or the stories of uh, the New Testament. Then you have like Gallio. Uh, Gallio's inscription was found in Delphi, Greece. Uh, the Roman Emperor Claudius writes to his friends and his proconsul Julius uh, Gallio. And so we find where the Roman Emperor Claudius is referring to Gallio as a real human being. Now, that inscription was discovered in 1905 by a team of French archaeologists, and they believe that that inscription was originally attached to the walls of the Temple of Apollo in Delphi. As originally referred to, this establishes the real presence of a man named Gallio. In addition, what it does, Blake, it aids New Testament scholars to pinpoint the Apostle Paul's date when he stayed in the city of Corinth, which is... Oh, wow. Which turns around and actually validates... The book of Corinthians, first yeah. and second Corinthians, and actually you may not know this, but there are three books of Corinthians. Two were canonized, one has been lost. Mm -hmm. So this inscription says that Gladius was emperor for the 26th time, which would date the inscription between January and August of A.D. 52. So this inscription actually helps us to put and place the Apostle Paul in the city of Corinth. You know, we we then continue on, and we have the uh, Salome inscription, which is mentioned in Second Kings twenty and twenty, uh, or in even Second Chronicles thirty two and three through four. Um, of course, the picture uh, that we have the Salome inscription uh, that refers to Hezekiah's water tunnel. The Salome inscription is said to be one of the oldest examples of Hebrew script. Uh, in eighteen thirty eight, Edwards Robinson discovered the inscription. The inscription records an construction of the tunnel known as Hezekiah's Tunnel, mentioned in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. Now, let's, stop, let's take for a moment, stop, because the reason this is so important is because the argument is the Jewish people have not been in uh, Judea or Jerusalem that long. Mm -hmm. And so the, as we find older scripts of the Hebrew language and we find them in places, connect them to the coins, and then date that site, what we're doing is placing Jewish people, Semitic people, in these areas long before Islamic people ever arrived. Oh, yeah. You know, and, of course, you, you was telling me our, uh, before we started the podcast, you can actually go swim in, in this tunnel now. Oh, in Hezekiah's Tunnel, yes. My daughter did, actually. Yeah. I did, and I took the stairs. I mean, <laughs> this is what it is. I'm not... I, I'm not staying wet all day long and walking up 50,000 rocks. It's not going to happen. Um, in Judges 6, 27 through 32, it mentions this guy named uh, uh, Gideon. But they actually found an inscription that talks about his name as Judge Jerubbabel. And that is what Gideon is referred to in the Bible um, when he demolished the altars of the God of Baal. So we have found inscriptions with the name referred to as Gideon when he was crushing the altars of Baal. So it confirms the story, possibly, of the altars of Baal being a place of worship. Mm -hmm. And plus, we have found, uh, as far as Molech's concerned, we found baby skulls everywhere, and we know that yeah. they sacrificed their children to Molech. Um, it's amazing that something as simple as one little line that may look insignificant that when I look at it or you look at it or someone else, they may not understand how to read it. <clears throat> but there's an archaeologist somewhere 
who is studying these writings, and they are able to connect that writing to a name that the Bible refers to as a proper name for Gideon. Yeah, absolutely. I find that one really fascinating. I didn't realize that he had a, a different name, so to speak, Judge Jerubal. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. The the Vespian it's like Judge Judy. <laughs> he loves some Judge I Judy. I love Judge Judy. <laughs> she, she, that woman is therapy for me. My wife says that I would marry Judge Judy and take her last name. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody that's as rich as she is, there may be some truth in that. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, the Vespian Titus inscription, which is mentioned in Daniel 24 through 26 and Matthew 24, 1 through 2, uh, these two inscriptions point to the reality of a fulfilled prophecy in the New Testament. Uh, I, I love that, that it's a fulfilled prophecy. Um, both Daniel and Jesus Christ prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. The emperor Vespian set forth this charge and led the destruction of the temple. He, replaced, he was replaced by his son, Titus, uh, the first picture is that of Vespian. Of course, we're looking at a picture here. Uh, Titus inscription found at, at Theratyra. Theratyra. One of the seven churches of Asia Minor, yeah. which is where Lydia came from, and it's they were known for the guilds of purple. So purple was a very expensive dye, and you had to get lots of mollusks or sea creatures at the end, uh, and you would open it up and get just a tiny bit of purple out of it. And so anyone who trafficked in purple actually were part of the guilds of Theratyra because Theratyra was one of the dying guilds where people died, uh, died, D-Y-E-D. <laughs> and uh, 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 Lydia was actually from Theratyra. Wow. Who dealt in purple, like the Bible says. That's awesome. The... Uh Going back to our uh, the Vespian Titus inscription uh, found in Theratyra, uh, it goes on to say that the second inscription was found in the tunnels of Vespian. Both inscriptions mention Vespian and Titus, the two individuals, uh, individual emperors responsible for the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, just like Daniel and Jesus Christ yeah. prophesied. Now, this is an important place to stop for several reasons. Number one, like Blake said, in Daniel chapter 9 and Matthew, I think it was 24. 24. 24. Yes. Daniel chapter 9 and then Matthew 24, we know that the temple was destroyed. We know uh -huh. that prophesied to be destroyed. That Jesus prophesied its destruction. Uh, we know in 70 AD it was destroyed. Uh -huh. I mean, that's, these are definitive facts. But what we have now is we have the Roman emperors bragging about their uh, conquest yeah. of destroying the Roman, or excuse me, the Jewish temple. Now, why that's so important, Blake? And I think we need to stop here is because uh, you won't find uh, ancient inscriptions bragging about being defeated by the God of the Jews if you're an Egyptian Pharaoh. Yeah, They didn't write inscriptions about, oh, on the 14th of 8th. Uh, July, we got our butt kicked big time. <laughs> yeah. No, never. They're going to erase that kind of history. Yeah. That's also what makes the Bible unique, that it does not erase the negative aspects of character and of faults and of sins yeah. in its people mentioned in the Scriptures, whereas that is not true of the Egyptians. That is not true of the Romans. That is not true of, in this case, of uh, the Romans. Uh, that they would not ever make an inscription that says, oh, we tried to destroy Jerusalem 
and we got our butt kicked. Yeah, you're right. You know, and, and I think that's uh, one of the greatest aspects of the Bible is it does not do away with our humanity and our fallen nature, which is thus the reason we need Jesus Christ. What? And also, that's true. That's very true. But it also, to me, reinforces the fact that Christians are nothing but broken people put back together yep. by the grace of God. And that we don't hide the fault that that man uh, is sinful and has, makes mistakes and that we need a perfect sacrifice like Jesus to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. Um, that's what's wrong with the world today. Yeah. When you look at all of the philosophical uh, ideologies that are producing anger and producing venom, venom and, and uh, destroying homes and you can't even eat a steak somewhere without some nut picking you all of that all that kind of stuff at the end of the day the problem is is that our governments of this world in the bible i was thinking about this blake going coming to work today the bible the scripture says this world is passing away yeah and so many christians as a pastor i see it as someone who evangelizes i see it all the time is that so many church people are living for today yes they're living for what they can get. They're living for, for uh, a boat, uh, a lake house, and there's nothing wrong with those things. You know, I, I, I literally was thinking about the same thing this morning, hmm. and I said most of us are living for the weekend. That's right. You know, we are living to, all right, I check my 40 hours off during the week. All right, boom, let's, let's you know, here in Kentucky, we live close to a lake. Yeah. And so we all scatter and we go to the lake. Oh. You know, I love to go to the lake too. Absolutely. You know, I love enjoying it. I love going down there. I love to fish. Uh, and so I go down there and I fish, but I'm not living for that. You know, Jesus said to, if any man wants to follow me, he must first deny himself. Pick up his cross, follow me daily. That's right. You know, that's so good, too, because there's nothing wrong with God's prosperity. That's but when right. God's prosperity takes us away from honoring the Sabbath, yes. I'm not talking about on vacation. I'm not a legalist. I'm not talking yep. about spending two weeks with your family. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about when nobody, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI can't find you <laughs> from, from the end of April all the way to the 1st of August. Yeah. I mean, there's something wrong there. And then you add COVID and the fact that they can watch te- uh, the church online. Yeah. But that's not what God commanded us to do. He commanded no. us to assemble. And I'm not trying to be hard. I'm not trying to be a legalist. But what I'm trying to say is that 2 Timothy 3.1 says one of the problems of the people in the last day is going to be they're going to be lovers of pleasure. Yeah. And, you know, Blake and I was talking before this podcast about a major factory that has people... Uh, hundreds of them on disability that can work, and I'm not against disability, but I'm against disability for people who can work. Yeah, I lost a good friend because um, they wouldn't work and wanted me to give them money. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Oh, you know they could obviously buy their wine and buy their cigarettes, or they can buy their groceries. Mm-hmm. Now that sounds hard, but this idea of a work ethic is so important. Yeah. That's so many things you can get out of a rock. <laughs> so many moral lessons. But right. Blake, tell us about the Nazarene description. That's one of my favorites. Mentioned in Matthew 27 and 62 and Matthew 28 uh, verses 11 through 15. Yeah, this marble slab uh, first appeared in ancient markets uh, for antiques. It eventually ended up in the archives of... Good luck's what I got to tell you right <laughs> now. <laughs> Mikhail Roto... 
I have no idea how to pronounce Rotoziff. Rotoziff. Yeah, sure. Uh, He's well, a well-known historian. That's right. Uh, you can find this in the Lethal Faith uh, book, uh, Volume 2, Rediscovering, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rediscovering Jesus. Available on Amazon right now. <laughs> that's right. Uh, he's, uh, he's a well-known historian. Uh, today, it, it, it finds its home in Lavor, right, which is a big deal about the slab of mar- marble. What is the big deal about the slab of marble? It records an ordinance of Caesar that threatens death to anyone who would disturb a grave or a tomb, right? This is, uh, talks about in Matthew 27, 62 through 66, clearly says that Pilate ordered such an ordinance after the death of Jesus. It now appears that through a 2020 isotope study of the marble by the Journal of Archaeological Science that this tablet's marble came from Kos and was issued by Augustus after tombs were desecrated in Kos. However, this marble slab does support the historical practice mentioned in Matthew. And so this is a great place. Uh, some ancient, or not ancient, some uh, overzealous Christians said, oh, this proves the story of this was there during the first century and it was issued after uh, Jesus was crucified. Mm-hmm. That's not true. But what this slab does say is that Roman emperors did issue those kind of decrees that the New Testament clearly talks about in the book of Matthew. Yeah. Now, this next one is one of your favorite. I love this one. This one's all yours right here. Well, if you've ever read Revelations 3 and 5 where it says that if your name is not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, um, your name will be blotted out. It would be blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. And what we found is we've actually found um, where Marcus Aurelius Antonius II uh, had his name blotted out from history. We've actually found the Theratyra inscription where the name of Domitia has been blotted out. Um, We have the details of uh, Gita, whose face was removed uh, from an, an inscription. So the book of Revelation is where Jesus sends a message through John the Revelator to the church of Sardis. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. A very familiar passage to a lot of Christians, but this practice of blotting out someone's name in ancient history is actually, Lethal Faith family, well attested. And Farrell Jenkins has a blog that shows this practice. The first um, idea that... uh, you can see of blotting out the name of the emperor Marcus Aurelius Antonius II <coughs> shows where there are marks that having been blotted out of Theratyra, uh, Domitia's name was uh, removed. So this practice of someone's name being etched, which I find kind of interesting because I believe, and I have no great doctrine for this, but okay. I believe that everyone's name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and when you get to the age of accountability and you don't accept Christ, your name is removed. Hmm. So in history, the name is etched in stone and then removed. The blotting out does not take place first. That's I'll right. blot your name out and then I'll write it back in. Uh, that's right. But it's etched in stone and then blotted out. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm good. Every once in a while, it's possible in my <laughs> life. So, gotta. But I love the fact that we are finding people whose names have been blotted out, and it it 
it gives validity to the cultural cues in the New Testament. You know, we're talking about blotting out people's names. You know, I, I know that they were trying to, you know, erase, so to speak, part of the, that history. But it just makes me think there's a lot of a parallel going on there with what's happening today, especially in America and even over in Europe and all that, is that we try to erase history. And that's... Well, you've opened a Pandora's box there because it's about the reconstruction of history, number one. Yeah. To get rid of any kind of history that's not connected to Marxism, Marxism, neo-Marxism, uh, it is to rewrite history in the way we want history to be interpreted. Mm-hmm. That's dangerous. But I have a problem uh, with taking down history. My family were abolitionists. They fought for the Union out mm-hmm. of uh, Hartford Calhoun in the 17th Infantry. Uh, my great-grandfather owned 1,000 acres, uh, actually hired slaves under persecution. Our family's from a... Confederate stronghold in Western Kentucky, and we stood up as Union um, and for uh, the abolishment of slavery. I don't want a Confederate, like just right down the road from where Blake and I live. The president of the Confederacy was born in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. As a matter of fact, there's a monument there. There's some people that want to tear down that monument. I don't want that monument tore down because I don't want my children or my grandchildren, if the Lord tarries, to forget yeah. The atrocities that took place against African Americans yeah. in this world. Or the fact that white men stood up for African Americans and gave their life and was shot. Like my uncle uh, at um, uh, uh, in Chattanooga mm-hmm. at the battle of, just skip my name, the battle there in Chattanooga uh, outside of Lookout Mountain. Um, I don't want them to forget that. No. But then again, my wife made a great point. She said, if I was an African-American, I would not want to go past a courthouse and have public money paying for something that's offensive to me. Yeah. But offense is everywhere. That's true. I, I can't go to Walmart and not be offended anymore. Oh, I get offended every time I go to Walmart. All I have to do is just go buy groceries. You know, <laughs> my, my wife went to the... Fourth of July festival to, to see the fireworks. Took the kids. I had to get up early for work uh, the next morning, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to skip this one. You know, I said, I'm going to stay home. I'm going to get some sleep because they wasn't shooting fireworks off to like 10 o'clock. Yeah, yeah. 9 30, 10 o'clock. It was late, and I was like, I'm getting some sleep. So my wife calls me and says, Hey, someone's threatening to beat me up. And I said, what? You know? So, like, I rolled down there strapped, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I got the gun on the side, you know. And so, like, I roll it down there. And, of course, I can't get in. Police have got it. uh, Roads blocked off. And I can't get to where she's at. Apparently, my wife, this lady had parked beside her uh, and was just screaming and cussing at her own kids. Um, and my wife just kind of had first side. Yeah. You know, my wife just kind of said she looked over at her and just, she just briefly made eye contact with her. Didn't say anything to her. That was it. Just my wife said she was just curious about what was going on. And so she saw, turned back around, nothing. All of a sudden this lady jumped out of her vehicle, came screaming, yelling, trying to fight my wife. And, uh, and I thought, what in the world? And, 
my wife said she didn't know what to say. And she said, so my wife said, she just looked at her and said, Jesus loves you. You know, <laughs> you know people are so angry. Yes. And, and that's a good place for a resource drop. And uh, my, I have a, my friend Ed Stetzer, who's a very famous yes. author, has been a friend of mine and a mentor to me in many places about church planning throughout my life. And I just love Ed Stetzer. I love who he is as a human yeah, being. Great guy. I have grown to believe who he is. And uh, uh, Ed uh, has written his, I mean, he's written so many books, but his best book is actually a book he wrote about anger. And if you don't own that book from Ed Stetzer on anger, about a culture of anger, how everybody's angry, and I forget Mm -hmm. the title of it right now, but it's the best book he's ever written. And everybody right now needs to read that book from Ed Stetzer on on anger, how you know how everyone's angry. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's brilliant. Yeah, I'll have to pick that one up and take a read. Well, uh, Quinerius, as we've talked about before, which is mentioned in Luke two one through twelve, also has an inscription, and the inscription that we do have in, of an Quinerius talks about um, a census that inscribes the fact that he conducted the census in the region of Syria around eight to four B.C. So all the skeptics said, ah, we got you. Well, we also have found the fact that he was head of uh, census twice in that region, once during the time I just mentioned, and then the other time during the time of um, uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, so Quinerius' census actually helps us to prove the fact that he did, in fact, give and was in charge of census, just like the Bible says. Then you've got Erastius, uh, and if you go to the city of Corinth, over by the remains of the Colosseum, you need to see Romans 16 and 23 in real life, because Erastius was the treasurer of the city of Corinth around 50 AD, and his name is etched in honor in that city on a limestone paving block and laid in the ground with metal. As archaeologists cleaned the limestone, they realized that it read Erastius, the city treasurer. And this dates to the first part of the first century um, and how Erastius actually paid for this piece of pavement. Yeah, the the uh, Polytarch inscription of Thessalonica, the rulers of the city, right, which is mentioned in Acts 17 and 6 through 8, uh, Sir William Ramsey did not... Uh, believe that Luke was a trustworthy historical writer of the ancient Middle East. As a matter of fact, this master archaeologist began his career trying to disprove the book of Luke in the Bible. He later recanted and called Luke one of the most trustworthy of all the ancient writers. So when we look at uh, Acts uh, 17, 6-8, you'll find a very particular world called uh, Polytarch, uh, we know it today as a very rare word for magistrates or rulers of the city. Uh, many skepticals of the Bible had a field day, so to speak, uh, with this strange word. They said it was added by another author at a much later date. They said the word had no meaning and was probably made up. Sir William Ramsey uh, assumed the same things until 1835 when he started to look at the exact word uh which Luke, the author uh, of the book of Acts, uses for rulers of the city. What Ramsey knew is that uh, proconsul was used in the senatorial provinces uh, in Ephesus. And so 
uh, the city of Thessalonica, okay? Uh, Ramsey realized that Luke was so accurate with these titles and their appropriate uses only added credibility to the scriptures. So, of course, Sir William Ramsey is an incredibly famous uh, archaeologist. You can read all kinds of writings uh, through him, and he's an incredibly uh, reliable source. We could go on and on about inscriptions, uh, uh, about uh, the people from Lystria. Um, We could talk about uh, the monuments to the silversmith where Paul... um, actually fought the silversmith because there's an inscription to the silversmiths, um, which is just um, fascinating to me. It was discovered in 1984, uh, mentions the prominence of silversmiths in the city of Ephesus. In Acts 19, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, incited a riot in the arena of Ephesus. Um, we can talk about in the inscriptions, the temple inscription fragments, uh, the Acts 21 and 28 refers to where it says, if anybody who's a Gentile comes upon the, the temple, it's called the temple warning inscription, they'd be put to death. We found inscriptions that support this. We found inscriptions that support uh, imperial worship. Uh, Sergius Paulus in Acts 13 and 7, his name is etched in history. Tyrannius in Acts 19 and 9. Zeus and Hermes um, being um, worshipped as Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14 and 8, and the worship of Zeus and Hermes. In this very city, um, uh, in Lystra, has uh, um, been proven to be true. Uh, the place, 2 Chronicles 7 and 6, said there's a place where the trumpeters trumpeted in Jerusalem. And we've actually found that place with its inscription. There's many kinds of all kinds of inscriptions, like even where Jesus cast the pigs out to swine, and even graffiti um, of early Christianities where they uh, take a donkey that they call an ass and hang him on a tree, a cross, which is the first piece of graffiti against Christianity that we have found. Wow. Um, we have Pontius Pilate's uh, inscription. There's all kinds of inscriptions. So something as simple as a coin or an inscription can prove not just one person, but the very city, date the very place. So there is an enormous amount of evidence that the stories in the New Testament are true. And I saw a, um, a uh, well, what do you call it, a survey this week um, of American Christians, evangelicals. Mm-hmm. And half of them don't believe the Bible is completely true, historically. Yeah. Now, does God have wings? Of course he doesn't. And so there's hermeneutical principles that have to be applied when reading the Bible. When he covers his chicks with his wings, you know, God doesn't have wings, but God is not sexual. Mm -hmm. And we've got a podcast coming up about how God doesn't have sex. And I mean not sexual functions, but I do mean sexual functions as well. God is asexual, and if God is not asexual, we're in big trouble. Now, did he come in masculine form? Is there a father, a son, and a Holy Spirit? Yes. Um, and uh, But as far as God being a woman or God being a man, he's the best of both of them, and neither one of them match up to him, and he is asexual. He is a divine being uh, that speaks reproduction through his words. Yeah. Um, and anyway, that's for a time of an, another place. <laughs> but we've got some exciting things. Before Blake closes this out, I just want to take a moment and encourage you. 
We have state leaders now being developed in every state of the United States that's dedicated to helping us as a family, as an army together to eradicate attrition in the church with a young generation and strengthen retention amongst students, amongst parents, and amongst church leaders. But one of the things that we're doing now that's new, that gives us teeth at the grassroots, and um, and that is, and we talk about it in our e-zines. If you're not getting our e-zines every month, go to neverbefore.tv and send us the information that you want to be signed up on the e-zines. I think there's a place there somewhere to register for that. Yes. Um, register for those e-zines because that's great information. Every week comes out Monday at 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, but however, one of the things that is happening now is that we are starting Bible studies with uh, students between 12 and 28 years of age. And we're starting them all over America in every region through, na- through state directors and uh, uh, Nathan uh, Harvey in Ohio, which is our state director for Never Before There, is already starting one of these small groups. These small groups are not dedicated to reading curriculum to adolescents. Yeah. They're driven by conversations. So you get... Eight or 12 kids together regularly. I do it once a month. Um, if you, Or you do it weekly at a Sunday school class, or you mm-hmm. can use it however you would like. But you start out with a question. Uh, what do you think about abortion? Now, we're building curriculum. Matter of fact, we meet August the 26th, and if you're a youth pastor or listening, I would love for you to be part of that. We yeah. invite you to it. Call us at 270-825-3513. Or email us at neverbeforeco at gmail.com. And we're building curriculum where you will have the questions to ask those kids. Uh-huh. And then you will have a response sheet that you study before the meeting. Because the meeting is led by conversations. It's not yeah. led by lecture. And it's led where kids ask questions. And you find out really where they're at in their belief system. Because belief is embedded through social networks. So we're building a social network. We're building apologetic defenses all within a small group. And we would love for your church to host one. We'll help you set it up. We'll teach you how to do it. But just reach out to us at Never Before at 270-825-3513. Because finally, Blake, we are now launching the Global Grid, which is our organizational system to get the message out about retention and stop attrition in the church, stop the deconstruction of faith and enable the construction of faith. Absolutely. You know, and with that, you know, it kind of is going to lead us a little bit into what we're going to begin to talk about next week, which is responding to the transgender movement. And, and, you know, and I know we're out of time. I don't care where I go. If it's San Francisco, I was just teaching there. Oakland, California, if it's Simi Valley, if it's uh, Valparaiso, Indiana, suburb of Chicago, if it is um, an Eastern Kentucky church in the mountains. Uh And I've been to all those places in the last couple of months. No matter where I go, that's the number one question about the LGBTQIA community and transgenderism. And when it comes to transgenderism, I think that is one of the most dangerous philosophies to children and young men and women that has ever existed. Yeah. And what people don't realize is there's an enormous amount of reconstruction of dysphoria taking place. There's an article right out now, as a matter of fact, it was on Fox today, of a transgender young um, woman 
who is now saying, this almost destroyed my life. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> one thing is that is absolutely definitive. Children have no business reconstructing mm. their gender. No, absolutely right. You know, so tune in next week. We're going to help give you guys some answers uh, to how to respond to some of those things. So, guys, as always, thanks for listening. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to the podcast today. Like when we talk. Don't forget to like, share, like subscribe. And as always, keep it lethal.